Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Our, our passage this morning is verses 21 through 26. So hear the word of the Lord. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Fathers, with a deep sense of inadequacy and unworthiness that I stand here today, but we thank you that you promise your word is powerful, it's living and active, and that you don't send it forth without accomplishing the purpose for which you send. So... We trust and pray and believe that today, and we ask your Holy Spirit to take it and apply it to our hearts in a meaningful way that we may grow to love you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, By Grace Alone, by Sinclair Ferguson, he has a very thought-provoking statement. Here's what he says. The gospel is an invitation to receive a gift, but many people hear it as a summons to do better. Think about our common culture. Many of you have seen this little bracelet that a lot of people wear around, WWJD. What would Jesus do? That's kind of the essence of Christianity, right? Just follow his example. Do what he did. Or the golden rule, do unto others as you would, hear, uh, as you would have them do unto you. Well, the gospel is not about something we do. The gospel is about something that God has done in Jesus Christ. And yet many professing Christians seem to live with some confusion about the clear meaning of the gospel, and they don't experience the joy of living in light of it. So that's what I want to talk about this morning, living in light of the truth of the gospel. And there's no better place to do that, in my mind, than this particular section in Romans chapter 3. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Buster's favorite preacher, called this the Acropolis of the Bible. Dr. Leon Morris in his commentary says, this may be the most important single paragraph ever written. Now, if I try to take this paragraph and boil it down to a single thesis statement, if you will, uh, this is what I've got in your bulletin, so look at it there. It says, God's righteousness revealed in Christ's cross has secured our eternal justification. I think what Paul is essentially communicating is this. God's righteousness revealed in the cross has secured our eternal justification. Now, I want to look at this statement under four different headings this morning. And the first is the need for justification. What's the real problem? I mean, why do we need justification? Well, Paul gives a very short parenthetical statement in verse 23 to answer that. He says there, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this term sin is a very simple concept. In, in the original language, the word simply means to miss the mark. If you imagine an archer with a bow and arrow, and he's got a target out there, and he shoots, and he misses the mark. That's the origination of the, of the word. Um, 
a little more theologically speaking, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. So God's law is a standard. It's a target out there. And Paul says that all of us have missed that target. Now, I grew up in an era where that was rarely questioned by anybody that I came in contact with. But the world's very different today. In the 21st century, in the postmodern West, um, there's a deep uh, questioning of the whole concept of transcendent right or wrong. Christian Smith, a uh, sociologist from Notre Dame, has written a book called Souls in, Trans- in Transition. And in this book, he studies the religious life of emerging adults. Now, emerging adults are uh, people in the West ages 18 to 29 in America. What do they believe? Well, unfortunately, here's a couple of his conclusions. First of all, he says this. As a general rule, they simply cannot, for whatever reason, believe in or sometimes even conceive of a given objective truth that is independent of their subjective self-experience. Or, as your bulletin says, the vast majority of these people are moral intuitionists. That is, they believe that they know what's right or wrong by attending to their own subjective feelings or intuitions that they sense within themselves. So most young people that you come in contact with today have this perception of morality. There is no transcendent objective truth. But you know, Paul spends the first couple of chapters of Romans dealing with this whole concept of the sin of man, and he deals with people like this even. In chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, this is what he says. For the Gentiles, that is people who don't have the law of God, who don't have a sense of what God's law is like, when they do instinctively the things of the law, these people not having the law are a law unto themselves. How? In that they show the work of the law is written on their hearts, their conscience, bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately either accusing them or defending them. Here's what I think Paul's saying. He says, listen, don't even think about the law of God for a minute. God has placed within each human being a sense of right and wrong. Each of us have a conscience. And what he's saying is that even the standard, the warped standard that you have set up, we all violate our own conscience. So it's for us then to appeal to that sense within people as we're talking about those who might deny the transcendent right and wrong that God has revealed. So all of mankind has missed the mark. We've all sinned. And we've fallen short of God's glory. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, in Romans chapter 1, Paul said this. He said, the glory of God is being revealed. It's revealed in creation, and it's also revealed within us. We all see it. And yet, he says, we have all exchanged that glory for idols. Now, often when we think of idols, you think of maybe some Hindu person who's got these little idols of gods strewn throughout their house, or you think of some totem pole out in the jungle. But we in the West, we're much more sophisticated with our idols. Tim Keller wrote a very devastating book called Counterfeit Gods. And in the book, he says this. He says, the human heart is an idol-making factory. It takes good things like a successful career or love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them, make them idols as the center of our lives because we think these things can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment. 
All of us are guilty of this. We have all taken God out of the central place and put other things in there. We're not all equally guilty, but we're all guilty. So, if this describes the problem, the need for justification, then what's the solution? Well, the answer Paul gives in this passage is justification. Look at verse 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. To understand justification, you have to picture the background of it. The background is a courtroom. And in this courtroom, there we stand. And God himself, the judge of the universe, is there to pass sentence upon us. That's the background of the meaning of justification. Um, here's a definition of justification. Justification is God's gracious declaration of the full forgiveness of our sins and the crediting of Christ's righteousness to us based on the finished work of Christ. For a Christian, biblically, what we need to understand is that justification is first and foremost a declaration and act of God himself. As the judge of heaven and earth, he stands and he passes sentence on us, and it's an act in which we are totally passive. Again, if you look at the text, it says being justified. This is in the passive voice. What that means is it's not anything that we do. It has nothing to do with our works. It's an act of God himself. Secondly, justification involves a full pardon or the forgiveness of our sins. When Paul expounds this concept of justification, which he does over the next couple of chapters, here's what he says in chapter 4, verse 5, just across the page. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David speaks, look at verse 7. What is justification? It's blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So this incredible statement of blessing upon those who've experienced the forgiveness. All of us have had the sense of guilt when we know we have done things wrong. And we've also had the experience of being forgiven. And what, what is being described here is that wonderful sense that Blessed or happy is the person who's experienced this. This was St. Augustine's favorite psalm. Augustine was a very profligate man who lived a life uh, apart from God until he was about 30 years old. And when the Lord saved him, this was the psalm he came to over and over, the experience of God's forgiveness. And understand that this promise of forgiveness is for all of our sins, past, present, and future. In other words, the sins that I will commit tomorrow and the next week and next year, all of my sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. Why? Well, because Christ has paid the penalty for those. In Romans 6, 23, Paul says the wages of sin is death, but Christ has borne those. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity and the sin of us all. We stand forgiven at the cross. Think about who wrote these words that I just read in Romans chapter 4. It was David. And David wrote this psalm immediately after the experience of Bathsheba. An experience in which David had committed sexual sin, adultery, in which he had murdered a woman's husband and covered it up. And David in, in the aftermath of that, can come and say, 
My sins are forgiven. Blessed am I. How can that be? Well, it's a glorious thing, and it's only because of the work of Christ for us. It's only because he has paid the penalty. Listen to what Tim Keller said. God's love and forgiveness can pardon and restore any and every kind of sin and wrongdoing. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. There's no evil that the Father's love cannot pardon and cover. There's no sin that's a match for His grace. Well, forgiveness is a wonderful thing, and it makes us feel so good. But as glorious as it is, forgiveness is only a part of justification. Forgiveness focuses on really the negative side. That is the avoidance of punishment and penalty. But justification is a lot more than that. In justification, God declares us righteous based on the crediting to our account of the very righteousness of Christ. Did you hear that? That the righteousness of Christ is credited to us. Martin Luther said it's an, it's an alien righteousness. It is from outside of us. It's nothing that we have done in contrast to works. Exactly what righteousness is Paul speaking of? Well, think about it. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. But Jesus lived a perfect life to fulfill all righteousness. Christ came and he says, all of the law, not one apostrophe, not one little period of the law is going to pass away. It's all going to be fulfilled because he came to do it. It is in fulfilling the righteousness of the law that Christ secured righteousness for us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is the clearest statement of this, I think, in all the Bible. He says there that God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Theologians call this the glorious exchange. It's a magnificent exchange whereby our sin is placed on Christ and Christ's righteousness is credited to us. It's his active obedience, it's his perfect life that he lived that allows us to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now it's important to remember that this righteousness is distinct from moral goodness. It is not that God makes us virtuous people. Think about it this way. The opposite, the opposite of to justify is to condemn. So if the judge stands up and he's about to pronounce sentence on a criminal and he condemns the criminal, does that make the criminal guilty? No, what makes him guilty is what he has done. The judge is declaring him guilty. He's passing sentence. In the same way, the opposite of that, when God justifies us, he declares us to be righteous. Here's what Richard Hooker said, a very famous English um, 16th century churchman. He says, Such are we in the sight of God, the Father, as is the very Son of God himself. Did you hear that? Such are we in the sight of God the Father, as is the very Son of God Himself. He says, let that be counted as folly, frenzy, or fury, whatever. But it is our comfort, our wisdom, and our care for no other knowledge in the world but this, that man has sinned, but God has suffered. That God has made Himself the sin of man in Christ. And that we are now made the righteousness of God. So, the hymnist really explains this. Think of the hymn, The Solid Rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, 
which pays the penalty for my sin and provides forgiveness, and his righteousness, that is the perfect life he lived, which is now mine. That's the solid rock. It's both and. Christ paid the penalty of the law, and he fulfilled the provisions of the law. Or think of and can it be. The fourth verse, no condemnation now I dread. Why? Because I've been forgiven. I've been declared free, set free from the penalty of my sin. Therefore, I'm alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. You see, justification is forgiveness, but it's much more. Forgiveness says you're free to go. Your penalty's been paid. Justification says you may come. You may come, my righteous child. Come into my presence. How does, how does Wesley close his, his verse? He says, I'm clothed in righteousness divine, therefore bold I approach the eternal throne. That's how we come, because God has made a change in our status before him. And how has he done this? It's all a gift of free and sovereign grace. Justification is a free gift. It costs us nothing, because it costs Christ everything. And it's all of grace. This word grace is a word that Paul is in love with. He uses it 95 times in his letters. And Paul luxuriates in grace. He's overwhelmed by the wonder of grace. And he constantly refers to it as God's unmerited favor to us who deserve punishment. Justification is by grace alone. It's a free gift of God. Now, how can God do this? Is this, is this really some kind of legal fiction that we're talking here? No, it's not, and it's not because of the cross. Without the cross, the justification of the ungodly would be impossible. The only reason that God justifies the ungodly is because Christ died for the ungodly. And that brings us to the third point I want to make, and that is the basis, the basis for our justification. And Paul gives three concepts here, and some of this really deserves a lot more time than we're going to give it. I just want to skim across the top of these. But the first is this, that our justification is based on the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This word redemption is a precious word. It's synonymous with salvation for us as Christians. It literally means to buy back. And uh, the, the word in, in the biblical sense is deliverance by payment of price or a ransom as we spoke about in the hymn that we sang, The Ransom. Think about it in this way. You have, uh, in the ancient world, you would have soldiers who would go and fight in a foreign country. And oftentimes, if they were defeated, the ordinary run-of-the-mill soldiers would become slaves. But if you captured a general, a high prize, the general would be held for ransom. And if the country really wanted him back, they would send a payment, and they would buy and purchase the freedom for this general. Same way with the slave. If you had a relative, the relative could come and purchase your freedom for you. That is redemption. And that's what Christ came to do. By Christ's death on the cross, he purchased, he paid the ransom for our freedom. Now, Jesus knew this was why he was coming into the world from the very beginning. In, John 10, in Mark 10, 45, Jesus said this, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ was born to die. Now, this concept of redemption highlights three different things that I want us to look at. First of all, the plight from which we were redeemed. The Old Testament picture of redemption is the children of Israel. They were in 
physical slavery in Egypt and God redeemed them and purchased their freedom. He, he bought them for himself. Now, that was physical bondage. In the New Testament, Paul says we're in a different kind of bondage. We are in moral bondage. That's what we are. We're slaves to sin. That's how he defines us in, uh, in chapter 6 of the book of Romans. In Ephesians 2, he says we are without hope and without God in this world. That was our plight apart from Christ. We were in moral slavery. So that's the first thing, the plight from which we were redeemed. Secondly, the price of our redemption. Here's what Peter says. Know this, that you were not redeemed by perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb that is without blemish, spotless. Redemption focuses on the great cost that was paid for our freedom. Thirdly, redemption points us to the person who accomplished our redemption. That is to God himself in the person of Christ. This word redeemer, B.B. Warfield says, is the name of Christ on the cross. It is there we see him as the one who bought our freedom. Acts 20, 28, Paul talks to the Ephesian elders and he says, we have been redeemed by the blood of God himself. That's what he says. So, finally, the book of Hebrews says this, that this redemption has not just been made possible, but it has actually been accomplished. Here's what the writer says. By his sacrifice, Jesus once for all time in his blood obtained eternal redemption. He secured it. It has been accomplished. It's not just been made possible. So that's a sure foundation for our justification that Christ has offered redemption through his blood. Secondly, in verse 25, we have a second ground for our justification, and in some ways this lies even deeper. Look at verse 25. Whom God has publicly displayed or demonstrated as a propitiation in his blood through faith. God himself has presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement or a propitiation for our sins. This word propitiation is a word that's not very commonly used in our language today. A lot of people are probably unfamiliar with it. But uh, as John Piper says, I encourage us as a church to embrace this word because it's got a precious truth. The word literally means to cover. And propitiation in the biblical sense means to appease the wrath of God by the removing of sin. Now, the wrath of God is not something that many of us are very comfortable with. As a matter of fact, uh, when we hear about Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Oh, it's not something that uh, makes us feel good. But there are over 500 references in the Old Testament alone to the anger and wrath of God. So to do justice to the biblical revelation, we must deal with it. Martin Lloyd-Jones defines God's wrath this way. It's in your bulletin. His settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of God's very nature by nature, God abhors evil. He hates it, and his holiness of necessity leads to that. So the first thing to understand about propitiation is, propitiation is needed is because God's wrath has been raised in response to the sin of man. His holiness is offended by our sin. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system is 
totally generated because of this problem. This is the problem it was designed to solve. How can a sinful man who's been alienated from God by his sin come into his presence? How can he be made right? Well, in the sacrificial system, you have over and over these sacrifices. You see the word translated, make atonement, made atonement. The most holy day in the entire calendar for the Old Testament Jew was the Day of Atonement. If you go to that chapter in Leviticus, there are 34 verses. 16 times in that chapter, you have this word, made atonement. It's the word propitiation. It's the same root word. So, as we look at the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, it's important that we understand this. These sacrifices are fundamentally different from sacrifices in other religion. How so? Well, in pagan religions, you have the concept of propitiation. I'm going to do something to propitiate God. And you see these terrible uh, scenes where people cut themselves or they stick, they pierce their body through with these sticks in an attempt by human effort to try to appease the wrath of God. The biblical picture is totally different. In Leviticus 17, this is what uh, Moses says. He says, God has given you the sacrifice on the altar to make atonement for your sins. Who did the propitiating? It was God himself. He provided the sacrifice. That's point number two. It's God who provides the sacrifice of atonement to satisfy his own justice. Um, Notice in our passage here it says it was God himself who put Christ forward as the propitiation. God's the one who did it. Um, there's this great quote by John Stott. It's on the screen there. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. If it is God's wrath that needs to be propitiated, then it's God's love which did the propitiating. Notice the triangle in your bulletin. Take a look at it there. You'll see these different angles. First of all, on a horizontal level, you see that Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, accomplished redemption for us. The redemption was designed to have an effect on you and me. But Christ also on the cross did something that was vertical. That is, by his death on the cross, he propitiated the wrath of God. He covered it. Therefore, God is now able to justify and declare us righteous. You notice there are errors from Christ going both ways. There are errors from God to us. There are no errors from us going anywhere because this is a work outside of ourselves. This is what God has accomplished for us. The final foundation that we see in this passage is that in doing this, in accomplishing redemption and providing propitiation, God did that to demonstrate His righteousness. Why was there a need for God to demonstrate His righteousness? Well, because God's righteousness had been called into question because of what? Because in the past, God had passed over sins. In His forbearance and His patience, He had passed over sins committed long ago throughout the Old Testament. And He says the word again. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness. That's why God did it. Now, what this really points to is, from a human perspective, there is a tension within the Godhead. It's a, ten it's a tension between the inflexible righteousness of God and His transcendent love for us. And what Paul says is that here on the cross, 
what we have is that God's justice and God's love are simultaneously being displayed so that God can be both just and the justifier of those who have faith. John Stott says it this way, without a holy God, there wouldn't be a problem of it for an atonement. There's no need for atonement. It's the holiness of God that necessitated the propitiatory work of Christ on the cross. This is the answer to the question, how can a sinful man be made right with God? It is only through the sacrifice of atonement that Christ made on the cross. So our passage here tells us God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. But please understand and hear this. There's more. He did it to demonstrate his love. Paul uses the exact same word, this demonstrate, in chapter 5, verse 8, when he, where he says this. God demonstrated his own love for us in that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Look, this is the demonstration of the love of God. First and foremost, it is Christ dying for us. Jeremiah 31 calls this love an everlasting love. It's an eternal love. It's a sovereign love. It's a love that draws us to him. He says, look at this demonstration of love and be changed. This is what the holy love of God looks like on the cross. Well, these three foundations that we've laid are objective things that all happen outside us. But how do we make them apply to us? How do they become ours? That leads us to the fourth point, which is the instrument of justification, and that is faith. Now, saving faith involves three elements. Follow me here. First of all, it involves knowledge or content. That would be this, that God became a man in the person of Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross, and he rose again from the dead. The gospel story has content to it. That's the story. That's the knowledge that one has to have. The second element is that not only do you have to know this knowledge, but there must be some mental assent. A lot of people know the facts of the gospel. They just don't believe they're true. They don't assent to them. So the second element is that we say, yes, I hear those things, and I think they're true. I grew up in a very small town in the south. You know what? Probably 90% of the people that lived in Murray County, Georgia, would, assent to the mental, uh, would mentally assent to the truth of the gospel. But, but there's more to saving faith, and this is what I want us to understand. Saving faith involves what John Murray called whole soul trust. It involves a personal commitment. It, it involves, here's the difference. The difference is this. Last week, we did uh, the Apostles' Creed. We confessed our faith together. In that, we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, who was crucified, dead, and buried. Here's the difference. I believe that Jesus was crucified for me. For me. I don't just believe in the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins. I believe that He's forgiven my sins. Because he died for me. You see, that's the difference. Um, faith is not strictly a cognitive affair. It's not just something that happens in our minds. It is an act of our will. It involves a trusting in the work of Christ on the cross as a, as a substitute for me in my place. Now, we've talked this morning about some, uh, some big concepts, really. 
um, different perspectives on the work of Christ on the cross and all its richness. And yet, when, when, we, when we boil it down, it, it's really the gospel is a very simple message. The, the hymnist, I think, had it right when he said, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. For me. That's the gospel. It, it, it's simple. Let, let me tell you a brief story. Um, I grew up in a family with just two uh, children, my brother and I. He was two years different from me. We were very close. We did everything together. I loved my brother. When I was about 10 years old, my brother was eight, my brother incurred the wrath of my father. He, he, he disobeyed. And my dad, um, we didn't know anything about time out in my family. It was all corporal punishment. It was pretty much that's all it was. If you, uh, if you messed up, that was what was coming. So we're there, and I know that my brother's about to get it. And I don't know what came over me, but, but I said, Dad, Dad, I want to take Randy's spanking. I, I want to take it. So my father gladly obliged me. He took me, and he wore me out. And I learned a very valuable lesson. Never do that again. Never do that again. Um, actually, that's not the lesson I want you to take from it, though. There is a lesson here. The first lesson is this. Somebody's going to pay the price. Somebody is going to pay the price. The second lesson is the principle of substitution. I was a 10-year-old child but I understood that somebody's going to pay the penalty here. And if I substitute myself in that spot for my brother, you know what? He'll go free. Now, that's a dim, maybe a bad picture. But, but in essence, what I'm saying to you is this. A 10-year-old child, a small child can understand the simplicity of what happened in the cross. It is complex. It's amazing. It is, it's, like, it's, it's like you take a prism and you turn it different ways and you see the glory of it. But it's as simple as this. The hymn writer said it. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place condemned he stood. But he sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So, the question is, is, is that your confession this morning? Is that your experience? Look at Luther's first. Here's how Luther says we're to apply this. Number one, the gospel must be understood properly, proclaimed widely, contended for bravely, and accepted personally. Now, we could all do enough for a lifetime if we could apply that. If we could just do that, that would be enough. But secondly, not only are we saved by grace through faith, but we're to live by grace through faith. This faith is not meant to be just a one-time experience. Paul said in Colossians 2, just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, so live in Him. Day by day, that's the experience. And as we do, here's the challenge. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Jerry Bridges in his book on holiness says that this is an important thing, that it's an important discipline we need. You know, many of us think that the gospel is the simple message and we graduate to more important things, right? No, no, we never, never graduate from the gospel. Here's what uh, Tim Keller says. 
It's in your bulletin. We habitually and instinctively look to other things besides God and His grace as our justification, hope, significance, and security. We believe the gospel at one level, but at deeper levels we do not. I think what he means is this. We trust God for our eternal security, but we don't trust Him for tomorrow. That is me. Too many times. That is me. I trust God for my eternal security, but I don't trust Him for tomorrow. Here's what Paul Tripp says. He says, preaching the gospel to yourself every day means remembering who you are as a child of God, resting in His power and provision, and then acting in a reliance upon Him. You see, the action and doing part is important. That's a part of our faith. It's an outgrowth. But it comes from remembering who we are in Christ as a child of God and resting in His power and provision. Tripp goes on to say, there's a difference between just reminding yourselves of this truth and preaching the gospel to yourself. Preaching the truth of the gospel means self-consciously and intentionally reminding yourself of the person, presence, and provision of the Redeemer. That's what we're to do. And as we remind ourselves of these great truths, we, we experience afresh the joy of sins forgiven. The fact that, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So that we live our lives not so much out of a sense of duty, but out of a radical sense of gratitude for the grace that He's shown us. Let's pray and ask God to help us to live that way this week. Let's bow. Father, we love you. We thank you for your amazing grace. And we pray that you would take your word and apply it to our lives this week. uh, That we may grow to love you more and live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.